Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! Thank you, guys. Uh, it's good to be here this morning. I'm glad I get to work with those two guys, not, not with Mason for much longer, which is uh, sad but exciting all at the same time. Uh, yeah, it's good to be here uh, at Man Challenge with you guys in the block. I love it. Um, a couple months ago, I had a birthday, uh, and my wife kind of coordinated with some of our friends and family to um, have them send cards and encouraging notes to our, to our home uh, and so I received a bunch of cards from friends and family, and they were kind of just wishing me happy birthday, and I loved it. It was one of the best birthday gifts I've ever received. Uh, but one of my favorite cards came from uh, our four-year-old little nephew, Owen, uh, because I loved it, because it was not just a card that uh, had some nice words in it, but it also had a drawing. Uh, and I've got it here, and I know you can't see it here, so I'll put it up there. And I know what you're thinking. When you look at that you're wondering, Grant, are you sure that that is not like a, a Da Vinci or a Monet painting that was stolen from a museum and then like mailed to your address to frame you for, uh, for robbing uh, an art museum? And I can assure you, like I've done my research and at this point I am 99% sure that that is not a stolen painting, but is in fact a drawing from our four-year-old little nephew. But it's absolutely insane, I think. It's incredible that this little kid can take a crayon or a colored pencil and put it to paper and make that magic, right? I mean, look at, I mean, look at my face and then look at that and tell me that those aren't the same thing, right? I mean, he, he nailed it, the, the shape of my face, how I've got this sort of tumorous thing over here. And my nose has always been described as like, sort of like a pinpoint, just one dot. So, I mean, uh, I, it looks exactly like me. Um, and yeah. I think that's crazy. Um, I feel bad that I'm about to make fun of a four-year-old's artwork, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, if we're honest, I think that picture, this, this little picture that my nephew drew me, it doesn't look a whole lot like me. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a cute drawing, and I'm really glad that he drew it for me because he's wishing me a happy birthday and stuff, so I'm sorry. Uh, but the truth is that that picture doesn't really reflect me very well at all. And unfortunately, I think sometimes Jesus could look at the church and say the same thing about us. I think Jesus could look at the body of Christ and say, hey, is that, is that supposed to look like me? I think sometimes as the body of Christ, as the body of believers, we don't look as much like Jesus as we ought to. Uh, so we've been in this Ephesians series, Identity Crisis. We're looking at several different passages uh, in the book of Ephesians uh, that tell us who we are um, and kind of identify us, uh, show us our new identity in Jesus. So the first three chapters of Ephesians are a lot of theological truth. Paul is saying, hey, this is what's true about God, and then this is what's true about you. He's saying, this is your new identity in Christ. And then he sort of shifts gears. And today we're stepping into the second half of the book of Ephesians in Ephesians chapter four. And as we step into the second half, Paul starts to move towards more application of those theological truths. So he starts to talk more about, hey, because this is your new identity, this should be 
your new lifestyle. There's a new lifestyle that accompanies your new identity. First three chapters, Paul tells us a lot of things about ourselves, that we're saved, we're chosen, and we've, we've sort of wrestled with those truths here at Man Challenge the first couple weeks. But we also see uh, that we're called into this relationship with God. We're adopted to live in relationship with God. We're saved so that we can live in relationship with God. But what we're going to see in this text today is that we're not just called to live in relationship with God, but we're also called to live in relationship with God's people. Uh, And so we are called to be a part of the body of Christ. And Paul kind of coins that term, the body of Christ, elsewhere in Scripture. And it's this idea that we as believers, as a group of believers, the church, are meant to be literally the, the presence of the Messiah, the body of Christ. We should be the presence of the, the deliverer, the Messiah, the Christ on this earth. We should be an accurate picture of Jesus for the world to see. And we are. The only problem is that sometimes it looks like a four-year-old drew that picture, right? Sometimes, I mean, we're, we are a picture of, of Jesus to the world, but sometimes it's not a very accurate picture. It's a little bit morphed and it doesn't quite look like, like Jesus, And that's not a problem that is new to this generation. That's been going on for thousands of years, and that's why Paul has to address this in Ephesians chapter uh, 4. We don't always look like Jesus. Uh, Christ was was gentle and loving and kind, but then you look at the body of Christ, and you see that it's sometimes known for being harsh and and rude and and bitter. And maybe you are not a follower of Jesus, or, or you're kind of on the fringes, you're not really sure, And you came here today, and this is, I mean, it's taken you a long time to step back into a room like this, into some sort of church environment, because at some point in your past, you were hurt by church people. You were hurt by people who were supposed to look a lot like Jesus, but they didn't. They were supposed to be an accurate picture of what Jesus looks like, but they weren't. And if that's you, I want to say, I'm I'm sorry. And I, I don't want to apologize on behalf of of other people. I want to apologize from, from me to anyone like that in this room, because I know that I've contributed to that. Even if I'm not the person who, who didn't reflect Jesus to you, I know that I've been hypocritical. I've been prideful. I've been judgmental. I've not always looked like Christ. But again, that's not a new issue to our generation. That's been going on for thousands of years since the beginning of the church, and that's what Paul begins to address in Ephesians chapter 4, that as the body of Christ, we're called to reflect Jesus. We're called to live a lifestyle that reflects the calling that we've been given, but that's really hard when we are imperfect, broken, sinful people. And so the question that I think that starts to arise in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 is how do we live a life that reflects the calling we've been given? How do we live as the body of Christ in a way that reflects Jesus? So in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, we see that question begin to arise. So I'll give you a second to get there. It's Ephesians 4 verse 1. We're not going to have it on the screen. Uh, So you can pull out your phone or your Bible. It's Ephesians 4, verse 1, and this is what Paul says. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Uh, So real quick quick caveat, Paul introduces himself as a a prisoner of the Lord, which is just cool because as he's writing this letter, he's uh, sort of under house arrest uh, and like he's probably literally chained to to a a Roman guard. He's probably got a shackle on one of his hands that's then also linked to 
uh, a Roman guard, and he's writing these letters, and he is reminding the readers, hey, I'm not primarily a prisoner of uh, the Roman government. I really belong to Jesus. That's who I belong to. That's who's, who's taken uh, my heart captive. Uh, and he reminds his readers of that, and I just think that's cool. But uh, he says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And essentially what he's saying is, hey, as the body of Christ, live, uh, live a life that reflects the identity that you've been given. So I've just told you in the last three chapters who you are. This is who Jesus says you are. Now live a life that reflects who Jesus says you are. And, and I told you, you are the body of Christ, so live a life that reflects the fact that you are like Jesus, that you are the body of Christ. And so again, that question that we see arise in this verse and then is answered throughout the rest of this passage is how do we live a life that reflects the calling that we've been given? How do we, as the body of Christ, represent Jesus? And I think Paul's going to give us two major truths to hold on to that will help us live in a way that reflect Jesus in this world. First, we should pursue peace and unity in our similarities. We should pursue peace and unity in our similarities. And we see that in the first six verses or so, but we're going to start in verses two and three. We should pursue peace and unity in our similarities. Um, Paul here is going to rattle off a couple commands, and I think it's important for us to remember that as Paul is giving these commands to us, he's not uh, just saying, hey, here's, here's a list of rules for you to follow so that you can go to heaven and, and be all good with God. He's really saying, hey, in light of, of who you are, in light of all the mercy and the grace that God has shown you, here's how you should live. Here's the lifestyle that should should be reflective of your new identity. And so he begins to give us some words to describe and some commands uh, for this new lifestyle. He says in verse two, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And then he says in verse three there, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. He uses a couple words there, uh, humble, uh, gentle, patient, and I think uh, if we're honest, in a room like this especially, we recognize that those are good godly characteristics. Yeah, it's good to be humble and gentle and patient, but I don't know that those are always the words that we would uh, maybe choose first uh, to have describe us. As a group of men, I think oftentimes we'd rather be described as respected or respectable or impressive or, or strong. Humble, gentle, patient aren't really the words that we are naturally uh, inclined towards. It's not really what we crave uh, naturally. And if you want a behind-the-scenes look into the ugliness of my heart, um, I don't even know that it's strong or uh, respectable. I don't know if those are the words that I crave instead of uh, humble, gentle, patient. I think even in ministry, um, a lot of times what I, in my moments of sinfulness and brokenness, really want is for someone to look at me and say, Grant, you're, you're talented. Or Grant, you're, you're full of great potential. And that's so screwed up, honestly. And I think if Jesus could, could speak to me in those moments, and if Jesus spoke to me when I'm, I'm craving that more than I'm craving to be humble, gentle, and patient, I think he would say, Grant, I love you, dude. I love you. You're not defined by what anyone else thinks of you. You're defined by my love for you. But listen, I haven't called you to be full of great potential or talented because someone could be strong or respectable, impressive, full of great potential and talented. He could be all of those things and still tear the body of Christ apart. I've called you to be humble, 
gentle and patient because that builds the body of Christ up and allows you as a collective group of people to reflect me in this world. And this world needs me, not you. I don't need a a person full of great potential. The world needs me. And I think that's sort of what Jesus would would say to me. And I think that's why Paul offers this to us. He he calls us to be humble, gentle, and and patient. And so I think a question for us to wrestle with as we're considering how do we pursue unity in our similarities, how do we reflect Jesus in this world, we ought to wrestle with the question, am I a humble, gentle, and patient person? Am I a humble, gentle, and patient person? That's even a question you guys can wrestle with at your tables during discussion time. Uh, And if you're feeling really bold and courageous, you might want to ask that question to people who are close to you. Am I a humble, gentle, patient person? Uh, and to wrestle with that question because we have to pursue those sort of characteristics if we want to be people who build up the body of Christ and then reflect the calling that we've been given uh, to represent Jesus, to be an accurate picture of Jesus in the world. Uh, There's something else interesting there in verse 3 that I think is just really a fascinating image that Paul uses. Uh, He uses the word bond there. He says, "Bearing, uh, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And I think it's really interesting because uh, the word bond there in the original language, it means bond, James Bond. Yeah, I, uh, I'll I'll cut that joke out for Saturday. I was testing that one out on Thursday. Um, Okay, so... It mean, the word bond there, it's a word that is uh, similar to uh, the word that Paul uses earlier to describe himself as a prisoner. So it's this idea that Paul is literally chained to a prison guard, as I kind of like to imagine this. Paul's chained to a prison guard, and he's writing this letter. So he, he's got his left hand in a shackle connected to a, a guard, and then his right hand, he's got this quill, and he's writing the letter to the Ephesians. And then he gets to this point where he's like, I need a word to describe this sort of unity that the Spirit brings between all believers. This sort of uh, this sort of unity that is brought about by Jesus and his work on the cross and this sort of uh, camaraderie, closeness um, that should exist in the body of Christ. And then he's thinking, what word do I use to describe it? And he puts the quill to his chin as he ponders that. And then he looks down at his shackle and sees that he is linked to a prison guard. And then he says, oh, that's the word. And then he starts writing and he keeps writing the letter to the Ephesians. And he uses that word, bond of peace. And it's this interesting image that we as as believers because we are followers of Jesus because the holy spirit lives in us we are literally bound together we are bound together like paul is bound to a prison guard we are linked as followers of Jesus who live in the body of Christ we are linked together and we are linked by what we have in common by what's alike between all of us uh, the things that are the same, our similarities. And Paul goes on in the next couple verses, verses four through six, to remind us and remind the readers of what they all have in common. So verses four through six, uh, this is what Paul says. He says, there is, and catch how many times he uses the word one here to remind us of our oneness, the way that we are linked. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all uh, and through all. 
So he's really saying, hey, look at everything that you have in common. Look, look at all the similarities between you because you are members of the body of Christ, because I've united you through the Spirit. Look at what you have in common. common. Realize the likeness between all of you. Oh, you're a, a Republican and he's a Democrat? That, that's great, but you got the same spirit living inside of you. Oh, you're a, a hardworking homeowner and he's a homeless person who, who's begging for money on the side of the street? Yeah, you're different. You come from different backgrounds, but you serve the same Lord. Oh, you're more laid back in the, the meetings at work and she's kind of loud and she gets on your nerves. That's frustrating. I get it. But you were both baptized into Jesus through one baptism. And so Paul is saying, hey, remember what you guys have in common and let that link you together. Let that be what unites you because we are all different people. There's lots of diversity in the body of Christ, but remember what you have in common. You've got one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one spirit, and he goes through all these different things to remind us of the likeness between believers. And so Paul has shown us that we should pursue peace and unity in our similarities, or to put it another way, that we should let our likeness link us. We should let our likeness link us. But now Paul is going to shift gears, and he's going to show us that we should also pursue unity and maturity, not just in the similarities, but also in the differences. He's going to show us not to pursue, uh, not just to pursue unity uh, and peace in our similarities, but unity and maturity in the things that are unique about each believer, the things that God has given us that are unique, the differences between us. So in verse 7, Paul sort of introduces this idea. He says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So that word grace that Paul uses is closely related to the word gift that we see used other places in scripture, like when he's describing spiritual uh, gifts. Um, Very closely related words. And so the idea here is that God has displayed his grace to us by giving us gifts. He has invited us to sort of join him in his work by giving us gifts gifts. And that's, that's a display of his grace. And to give you guys a really practical example of this, I think Ronnie Cordray is a very gifted pastor. I think that he has this innate ability to uh, see the needs of, especially men, men in this room, and you guys have probably experienced this yourself, that he can see a need and then he knows how to meet the need and care for a person in a time of, of struggle or in a time of celebration. Ronnie is a very gifted pastor. I think that is something that God has literally enabled him to do in an extraordinary way through his Holy Spirit. So God has gifted Ronnie, but that's not something Ronnie can brag about. He can't walk around and be like, man, I'm just really good at caring for people. Like, that just comes so naturally to me. It's not something Ronnie can brag about because it's grace that God has shown to Ronnie to give him that gift because Jesus loves Ronnie and wants to include him in the work that he's doing, the mission that he's doing. So Jesus gives Ronnie the gift of pastoring people. I was thinking about this yesterday. This isn't even in my notes, but it's sort of like a dad working on a, a car. Like he's, he's popped up the hood and he's, he's, he's trying to fix up the car. And then he calls his kid over to him and he says, hey, I want you to help me with this. Like it's just a loving father who wants his kid to join him in the work that he's doing. But it's not just like the dad says, hey, here's a flashlight. Hold this while I do all the work. That's not how Jesus operates. Jesus says, hey, I'm doing this work. This is the mission that I'm doing. And he says, come here and I'll, I'll give you a wrench. 
and you're going to help me unscrew these things, and you're going to help me fix this car up. He gives us the tools, the grace, the gifts needed to join him in his work because he loves us and he wants us to work alongside of him. And I think that's the idea we see there in that word grace, that Jesus has given us each grace or gifts. Uh, And that's another thing in that passage that he's given that to each of us. Verse 7, again, it says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And so it's not just Ronnie Cordray or Mason Bramer. It's not just Grant on a stage. This isn't about uh, people on a stage or on staff. This is about all believers, that Jesus has distributed gifts and grace to every single person in this room. If you are a follower of Jesus, he loves you enough to include you in his work. And so he has given you grace and said, hey, join me. Here's a gift. And maybe you don't know what your gifts are or how Jesus has specifically given you grace, but that doesn't mean he hasn't given it. And so he has invited all of us into the work that he is doing. It's for each one of us. We each have a unique set of giftings, and we are each called to serve in a unique way, even if we're not on staff or on a stage. And so next, Paul, in verses uh, 8 through 10, goes on to kind of, he kind of grabs a, a scripture from the Old Testament to support this idea that Jesus gives his people gifts and calls them to use their uniqueness in a way that builds up the body of Christ. He grabs this passage from the Old Testament, and it is uh, confusing, uh, to say the least. Uh, and there are a lot of different interpretations of of these verses. It, it's just kind of weird, but we're going to wrestle with them a little bit, and I'll try to offer you uh, something helpful um, that I've been studying this week. So verses 8 through 10, this is what Paul says. He says, this is why it says, and he's quoting scripture, so this is why the Bible, the Old Testament, essentially says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And then Paul puts in parentheses here, almost sort of commenting on that. What does it mean he ascended except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Paul is reaching back into the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 68. Um, so it's this, this passage uh, from, from the poetic portions of the Old Testament. And Psalm 68 is is really about how God is this sort of warrior who fights for his people and defeats the enemy and then climbs up his holy mountain and then distributes gifts to his people after he's reigned victorious over the enemy. And so Paul is sort of reflecting on Psalm 68, and then he says, doesn't that, doesn't that sound a little bit like Jesus to you? And it does when, when we really think about it. God's people were held captive by sin. They were doomed to live forever apart from God. But Jesus, a warrior like none other that we've ever seen, because he came in the form of a little baby, but he grew up and he became this this warrior that um, even death couldn't defeat. He defeated the enemy and demolished the lasting power of sin by dying on the cross, which is is kind of ironic, but he didn't stay dead. He was the warrior that even death couldn't defeat, so God raised Jesus back to life. And then Jesus claimed his rightful spot as the king of all creation, but then remnants of the enemy, these evil forces, remain at work until Jesus returns. And we know that. Like, as we look at the world, we see there are still things that are broken and sinful. And it's going to be that way until Jesus comes back. And because of that, Jesus, he has ascended to to take his rightful place as the king of all creation. 
but he doesn't leave us helpless as we're wrestling with the remnants of this, this enemy. He gives gifts to his people so that we can continue to carry out his mission and fight the, the war and win the war against evil. And that's kind of what Paul is, is driving at as he reflects on, on Psalm 68. He's saying, man, that sounds a lot like Jesus. Jesus has given gifts to his people so that they can serve the body of Christ, win the war against evil in this world, and then represent Jesus in this world, be an accurate picture of him in the world. Uh, And then in verses 11 to 13, he moves forward and he gives us some specifics about uh, the gifts that Jesus gives and why he gives them. So verses 11 to 13, this is what he says. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and uh, in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Uh, So in those verses, early on, I said the word apostles and prophets, uh, and some people in this room might be a little uncomfortable when when we say those words. Some people might be indifferent and think, why, what's, what's intriguing or interesting or noteworthy about those words? And that's okay, because we're all bringing our own uh, sort of preconceived notions and interpretations and understandings of Scripture to this text. Uh, but we're just going to talk through this, this text uh, and recognize that there are a lot of different interpretations about what apostles and prophets are and what they look like in the world today. Um, but the text says that Christ himself gave the apostles. And when we hear, hear that word apostles, we can often think of uh, the 12 disciples and the, the, the 12 apostles that Jesus sent out. There are some people in scripture who are described as apostles who have all kinds of power and authority. Like Paul is described as an apostle and he's able to perform miracles and do these amazing things. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. The word apostle literally means one cent. Um, like, not like a penny, though. One cent, like a person who is sent on uh, a mission. Um, and so a lot of times in Scripture, in the New Testament, we see the word apostle used to describe people who are uh, sent on a mission to establish churches and build churches up. And I would propose that we look at that word apostle the same way in, in the church today. If God gifts people to be apostles, maybe God gifts people in the church today to establish churches and build churches up. He sends them on a mission to establish and build up churches. Uh, The word prophet is also uh, an interesting one and can become kind of convoluted and confusing because the Old Testament, you you read about prophets and they're predicting all kinds of crazy things. They're saying the moon's going to be turned to blood and all of these different things. And a lot of times they're predicting these big cataclysmic amazing events like the the birth of of Jesus, the Messiah. But in the New Testament, we also see prophets, and they function a little bit differently. Uh, A lot of times a prophet uh, was not so much predicting the future. A prophet, even in the Old Testament, this is true, a prophet more often than not is actually just proclaiming the truth that God reveals. Not necessarily predicting the future all the time, but proclaiming the truth that God reveals. And I think even the function of a prophet has probably changed, changed as Uh, or since this text was written. Because in Ephesians, as Paul is writing this letter, the New Testament isn't even completed yet. Uh, So God primarily reveals himself to us today through his word. It's the clearest form of his revelation that we have through 
through his word, but also through Jesus, his son. That's how we uh, often come to know God. That's how he's revealed himself. But if we have all of this content, all of this revelation from God about his character uh, and our new identity, we have all of this in God's word, but this church in Ephesus wouldn't have had the complete New Testament yet. And so a prophet would have been especially helpful because they can declare the truth about God. They can declare what God has revealed to be, be true. And so the function of a prophet may have changed since this text was even written because we have so much revelation about who God is already in his word. I would contend, though, that the function of the prophet is still the same in a few key areas, that essentially a prophet, just like it has always been, is someone who declares what God has revealed. And so in the church today, maybe a prophet is someone who God has gifted in an extraordinary way to point to God's revelation, to point to the right place in God's word at the exact right time, to speak into specific circumstances, uh, to enable individuals and bodies of believers to honor God, to build up the body of Christ, and to follow his will. So someone who's able to uh, speak the truth about what God has revealed in a really, really helpful and relevant way. Um, So those are really interesting things to wrestle with. Um, But the important thing to note in these verses is is that Jesus distributes a variety of gifts. It's not just the apostles and the prophets. There are several other things he mentions there. He talks about evangelists and pastors slash teachers. um, And that's not an exhaustive list by any means. He, he lists these different gifts uh, and shows us that Jesus gives all kinds of different gifts. He also shows us in this text that uh, some people are called into church leadership positions, uh, specific leadership positions in the church, but it's not just that. Again, we talked about the word each earlier, that these gifts that Jesus distributes, some are for people to step into leadership roles, but others Uh, are for everyone else in the congregation, everyone else in the body of believers, and it's not a hierarchy by any means. Um, In fact, as we continue reading there, it says uh, why he gives these gifts. It's to equip his people for the works of service. So some people are gifted and called into an equipping sort of role. They're called to serve by equipping, and then other people are just called to serve. They're called to do ministry, but that's the thing that we have to note in these verses is that we are all called to do ministry ministry. You don't have to be the person on the stage or behind the microphone or on the staff. We're all called to do ministry and to serve the kingdom and to build up the body of Christ in some way, to pursue unity and maturity in our differences. And so the question that I would have us wrestle with today is how has God uniquely gifted you to serve in the body of Christ? I would wrestle with that maybe at your tables. How has God gifted you uniquely to serve in the body of Christ. Uh, Verse 13 shows us that the purpose is to build up the body in unity and maturity. And so we see in the second half of the text that we should pursue unity and maturity in our differences, not just our similarities. Or to put it another way, that we should let our uniqueness unite us. We should let our uniqueness unite us. So I want to take a step back and look at what um, Jesus, what God has said about us in Ephesians so far. In Ephesians so far, God has called us holy and blameless. He's called us adopted, lavished in grace, chosen, predestined, sealed by the Holy Spirit, redeemed, made alive, saved, included, brought near. He has called us those things, but he has also called us 
to some things. He has called us to build up the body of Christ. He has called us to be the body of Christ, an accurate picture of Jesus in the world. So I've got, I don't know, maybe a proposition for you guys or a proposal. What if today we started to draw a new picture of of Jesus in this world? What if we picked up the the crayon or the colored pencil again, and even though we are flawed and it's not going to look perfect, what if we started to work together to draw a more accurate picture of Jesus in the world so that when the, the world, and so that when Louisville sees this group of men, when they look at the men in this, this room, they don't see some former athletes or, or some businessmen or some, some dads or grandpas or single guys. They don't see us. But so that when the world looks at us, they see a crucified carpenter or a sacrificed savior or a compassionate king. What if we drew that kind of picture? Let, let's let that be the picture we draw for the world. And to do that, let's let our likeness link us and our uniqueness unite us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, yeah, I just thank you uh, for being a good God who cares about us, who takes care of us. Um, God, we're grateful for the way that you've revealed yourself to us um, in a variety of ways. Um, yeah, thank you for allowing us to know you uh, and know not just you, but who we are because of who you are. Thank you for giving us a new identity that we are no longer dead in our sin, but we are made alive like Wes taught about. Thank you that we have been adopted and chosen, Lord. Thank you that you have given us a new identity. I pray, though, that from our new identity would flow a new lifestyle, not so that we can be saved or earn our salvation or favor in your sight, God, but so that we can glorify you and so that we can let the world see an accurate picture of the one who has changed our lives. So Jesus, I pray for this room of men right now that uh, though we are different in a lot of ways, and though we are similar in a lot of ways, I pray that none of that would matter a whole lot, but that we would just be a united body of believers who look a whole lot like Jesus so that the world can be changed and so that you can be glorified. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media.